following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. As Pete said, Anthony is gone. Um, we searched as far as we could and couldn't find any more videos of him. Um, so I made something up. Um, I love that uh, that um, that Dan did communion this morning, that we were able to take communion together on the day that we're speaking about peace with God. Uh, it's just a neat connection because... Uh, communion is a lot of things, but one of those things is celebration of peace with God through Christ. So I'm studying for this, looking at uh, not only the Christmas story that we're going through, but also making a connection to Advent. What is peace? I started thinking about that a few weeks ago. And you know, the common understanding I don't think is necessarily too helpful, but let's start there. You know, Typically we think, or at least I think of peace as calmness or, or lack of stress, restfulness, um, things that I don't experience, uh, but, but these are things that I tend to think of when I think when I hear the word, but but may not experience very often. Um, and as I was thinking through this and my experience, I thought um, I would ask you if the Christmas season fills you with an overwhelming sense of calm. Uh, I'm not sure that it does. It depends what we mean by peace, right? There's different kinds of peace, different ways of looking at it. Uh, now, maybe I'm admitting too much here, but um, these things don't help me a whole lot, especially in understanding what the Bible talks about with peace. Um, and actually hearing these things uh, somehow brings me more anxiety, <laughs> especially in December. It's like, calm down, rest. I can't. Uh, I don't know how. When I think of December, I don't typically think of the word peace. That's not the first thing to come to mind. Uh, and even Christmas, unfortunately, that's just... With everything that's wrapped up into it um, and add life to it, it's just a complicated, a complicated life. So this concept of peace is not terribly close to mind when I think of Christmas or December. Uh, and when I look at popular imagery, even Christian things like Christmas carols, uh, those don't always help a whole lot either. Uh, I'll give you one example. We have babies at home, as you probably know. Uh, I love them dearly, but I can't relate to Silent Night. Uh, I've tried. Uh, Jesus was human like us. Uh, because of that, I suspect that Mary uh, could sympathize with me. Uh, she was spit on, I'm sure. Um, you know, had diapers to change, crying. Uh, she probably didn't always think about Jesus as being tender and mild. And it's a nice song, but um, it, it was a, a different life than the song, I think. She may have said, sleep in heavenly peace, but I think it was probably not as pretty as the hymn. It was probably... Almost a threat. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying what I've done. Uh, so, so what is a biblical understanding of peace? Because these aren't the things I've said aren't untrue, but they're not the whole thing. Uh, biblically speaking, peace certainly does include a sense of calm and quiet and stillness, but there's a lot more to it than that. Um, in popular language, we typically think of peace as not a thing, but the lack of things, lack of war, lack of stress, lack of conflict. But that falls short because peace sure seems like it's spoken of in Scripture as a thing itself, not just lack of bad things. Um, so, so biblically speaking, um, peace is talking about a positive presence. And in Hebrew, the word is shalom. Uh, there's a different word in Greek, and you can look that up if you'd like. Um, but in Hebrew, the word is shalom, and it carries a full idea of not only what I said before, but also things like safety, wholeness, well-being, completion, when you think of the, the very opening verses of Scripture that God said, and it was, and he was pleased, he said it was good, 
That was, that was a small part of shalom. Things were as God intended them to be. So to experience true peace is in part, or, or one way to summarize it would be to experience life the way that God intended us to experience it. And if you're to talk about bringing shalom, it would be the idea of to make whole or to restore. So to bring peace on earth, as we read in Christmas accounts, would be to restore the relationship between God and his people. It's a restoration. Because our most fundamental need is to repair what we have broken with God and to make payment for the debt that we owe to him. So I want to say a little bit of what the Bible says about peace. Isaiah said that the Messiah would be called the Prince of Peace, and Dan mentioned this earlier. He said that his reign and the peace that he would bring would not end. But does it seem to you like there was a drastic, peaceful thing that changed in the earth 2,000 years ago, and government has been without conflict, and that peace has only been increasing for 2,000 years? It doesn't seem like that to me. So this is a clue that we're talking about a different sense of peace. When Isaiah was talking about the Messiah, he wasn't talking about him bringing peace or freedom from the Romans or quiet nights by the fire or the American dream or whatever you might think of as the surface ideas of peace. And in fact, when Jesus came, he made this clear. When talking about what he came for, he said directly, I didn't come to bring you peace, but a sword which is not terribly comforting if you're expecting him to make all things right and, uh, and, and calm and quiet and peaceful. Uh, and if you read on what he says after that, he goes on to reiterate he came to make life harder. That was the result of his, of his life and death and calling us to follow him. His life would be hard for him, for us. And because of him, many of us would become estranged from even our own families. Some would even be killed for following him. So the life that Jesus describes for us on earth does not sound like a life of peace. Um, so who in scripture said that peace would come, that peace would come on earth, or that it had come on earth, I should say? As it turns out, the people who said this most consistently were false prophets. And Anthony's mentioned this uh, recently, that numerous times you see in scripture people saying, peace, peace, where there was no peace. These are prophets saying, hey, everything's cool. You're okay with God. Kick back, relax, don't worry. Be happy. God's, God's got, got this. It's all okay. Um, he doesn't have any requirements. He's okay with you. He loves you. Um, or painting Christianity as a wide and easy road, which Jesus did not do. So if you hear people painting it as an easy thing or a peace that we already have apart from Christ, that's a false teaching. Uh, Isaiah also quotes God saying there is no peace for the wicked and that God gives perfect peace to the one whose mind is fixed on him. Uh, I've heard many people portray peace, or when they're talking about peace, they say it means we shouldn't rock the boat, um, that we should keep the peace. But I wonder if that's possible uh, to do it in, in that way of speaking. Um, and a better question, is that what we're supposed to do? If we are experiencing the life God designed, is there any peace to keep? And we don't have peace to begin with uh, if we don't have the life that God designed. Avoiding conflict, keeping the peace, is not the same thing as promoting peace. It might sound like the right thing to do, but that's not always the case. Because we misunderstand Jesus' instruction. He didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. In popular language, you sometimes hear about peacekeeping forces being sent to foreign lands. It's kind of a funny phrase. 
Um, the idea is they're supposed to go and maintain the status quo. Don't get too involved. Just keep it the same as it is. But that's not what scripture speaks of. Nowhere does it say go among the people and just make everything stay the same. The Bible talks about making peace. And peacemaking is the act of going where there is conflict, where things are already broken, and doing the repair work that's necessary. Um, sometimes the military is involved in, in imposing peace. That's peacemaking. It's messy. Soldiers can be peacemakers. Ambassadors negotiating treaties can be peacemakers. A surgeon can be a peacemaker. Counselors dealing with people and their relationships and life can be peacemakers. We are called to be peacemakers, to, to resolve the conflict between God and man and to help others to do the same. Peacemakers are, the, peacemakers are those who enter a situation that is broken and do what is necessary to restore it. So what does this have to do with Christmas? It has everything to do with Christmas. The trouble is we have some of the story wrong. We don't understand all the details. So this morning I'm going to touch on a few things that Scripture says about Jesus' birth that are different from what we learn about in Christmas carols, commercials, nativity sets, things like that. So, um, there are various various popular accounts of where Jesus was born. They center around Mary and Joseph looking for a place to stay, knocking on it. You know, they're looking at Expedia or whatever and trying to, you know, go door to door down the hotel row and find a room where they can stay. And every one of them, no vacancy, nowhere to stay. Um, but miraculously, there's a one of these guys working at the front desk at one of these motels, says, we don't have a place, but there is this barn or cave, depending on your reading. Um, there's this place you can say you're welcome to stay there. Um, and because of this account, I'm guessing those of you who have a nativity set, it's probably a barn, right? Barns, nativity set. Yeah, that's, that's normal. That's what everybody has. The trouble is, of the things I just said, none of them are true. Well, maybe some, but none of them are in the Bible, at least. None of those things is mentioned in scripture. Um, it's, you don't have to go home and throw away your nativity sets. It's fine. But I'm interested in looking at what does the scripture really say because it, it says something different. Bethlehem most likely did not have a single inn. It didn't have a place to stay. It was a tiny little town. Uh, and it was not known for tourism. People did not go there for fun. There just weren't places to stay most likely. Also, there is no mention of an innkeeper in any account of, of Christmas, of the Christmas story. Um, and there is no mention of a refusal being made of someone saying, no, you can't stay here. I mean, these are things that seem, at least to me, growing up, core to the Christmas story. But look it up. They're not in there. Uh, we infer all of this from the phrase, there was no place for them in the inn. We'll come back to that. But right now, all I want to point out is there was no innkeeper. None mentioned, at least. So where did they stay, if not looking for an inn, or a barn, or a cave? Keep in mind where they were going and Why? Mary and Joseph were returning to Joseph's family's ancestral hometown. They're going there to pay taxes. Um, for those of you who aren't from here, imagine that I asked you where your people are from. And I'm thinking about people I can think of off the top of my head. Ron, I think you're from Anchorage, right? Uh, Alaska and the, the Gordons. You got California and Kansas, right? And uh, Childs, you guys are from Pennsylvania. Even if you haven't been there in a while... If there's a place that you haven't been, but you're from there or your people are from there, if you needed to go somewhere in that very town and you went to some motel trying to find a space and ended up getting put in a barn, would you really do that if you had family in town? You'd probably go and talk to family. That would have been a slight, actually, to not 
tell family that you're in town and ask if you could stay there. Uh, that's probably not what happened. Most likely, because they were going to Joseph's hometown, his family's hometown, the chances that he saw relatives there were extremely high. And most likely, they would want to catch up, especially with the baby on the way. So, at a minimum, people without means, like Mary and Joseph, probably would have thought, who do we know there? Do we have family there we can check with before going and shelling out money, right? And that's what I would do. And that's what people did then. And it's most likely what they did. Um, and that would explain why there was no innkeeper, because they didn't go to an inn. The problem in Luke 2.7 is not that Bethlehem was out of rooms, hotel rooms. So why did Luke say there was an inn? It turns out he probably didn't. This is a strange choice of words from the translators here. The word, kataluma, and as you've probably picked up by now, my Greek is flawless. Um, <clears throat> kataluma is a word used three times in the New Testament. Um, in two places, they translate it guest room or upper room, depending on your translation. In one place, they translate it as in. Why? I don't know. But, Elsewhere, it makes a whole lot of sense that they call it a guest room or an upper room. The Last Supper was held in the upper room that was in a cataluma, in a person's house. They said, go to this person's house and ask them. Um, that is a cataluma there. Uh, so, and this word is flexible. It can be used multiple ways. So an inn is possible, but it sure doesn't seem likely. I'll give you a few reasons. One, there's nothing in the surrounding text to suggest that an inn would have been preferable to staying with family. Um, second, everywhere else, like I said, is that the word is used is translated guest room. And third, there's a perfectly good Greek word. It's even easier to say. That one. A pandochion, maybe. Um, that means a room for rent, where you pay someone to stay in a place. That sounds like what we think of in the Christmas story, but that's not the word they used. If that's what Luke intended to communicate, it seems like he would have used that word, but he didn't. So, um, lastly, uh, just don't think about the no vacancy thing anymore, about not having rooms like hotel rooms available. What we've done with that picture we have is made a word fit a story that we have in our head. We've brought this idea to the text. It's not there. The word room or no room can mean a lot of things. If I say there's no room, if I'm at a hotel, that could mean that none of the rooms available for rent is available. If I'm at my house and say there's no room, that probably means I just have a lot of junk, um, or there's people here, whatever. There's just not space anywhere. Most likely, what was meant when it said there was no room in the inn is that your cousins are already in the guest room, or somebody is already there. Co- a family is coming from all over. Anyone who descended from the same line Joseph did, they're all coming to the same place. And there's only so many people in so many houses that probably was already the place was probably already overrun. So. Family comes in, can we stay here? Can we stay in your guest room? No, it's jam-packed with cousins. But we'll find space for you. We'll put you somewhere. We'll put you in the Cata. There's no room in the Cataluma, but you're welcome in our house. And there's a Lego Cataluma in the upper right, the upper room, the guest room. So where did they stay? Why did they stay in the stable? It was not a barn or a cave, most likely. It was most likely in the house. So again, we've got relatives stacked like cordwood in every part of the house. Um, Mary and Joseph end up staying in the stable. Actually, it makes a lot of sense when you look at everything that's going on. I don't want to get too deep into it, but one aspect. 
The stable is where valuable animals would be kept at night. They might have herds outside, but their, their, uh, their most precious animals, they kept inside with them. Think kind of like a garage. It's inside your house in a sense. It's not living space, but it's part of your, part of your home. Um, so the difference here is, for animals, not cars, is one of the differences. Uh, animals don't do well with stairs, so it's the lowest part. That's why the upper rooms, the guest room, and the low parts, that's where the animals are. Um, so why does it make sense for Joseph and Mary to stay there? It makes sense because the presence of animals makes something ceremonial and clean. Uh, I won't get too graphic, but you can think of things that animals do. Uh, there's blood, there's other things that happen that are not ceremonial clean according to the Mosaic Law. You have to go through extensive cleaning rituals to be considered clean after coming in contact with them. Mary was about to give birth. Once she gives birth, she is going to be unclean for 40 days. So if they say, do you want to stay down here? Sure. It's a good fit. (laughs) I'm going to be unclean. I can't, I'm going to be, it doesn't matter that I'm going to be near animals because I'm going to be ceremonially unclean anyway. Um, So they stayed there, plus soft straw and warm animals. You could have done worse, I suppose. So why am I mentioning all this? Um, I've heard in recent weeks that people have enjoyed hearing the story behind the story from Anthony's recent messages. Um, also, there's things <clears throat> that just seem strange in the normal tellings often. Um, and when you hear a more plausible version, uh, sometimes pieces fit that just didn't before. Um, also, anytime I can make somebody think that this isn't true and they have to go read their Bible, that's always fun. Uh, at least I like it. Uh, I, I like to hear new things that make me read scripture with fresh eyes. Um, These aren't the only reasons, though. If you consider our topic this morning, I don't think the evidence supports that the Savior of humanity was born in squalor, rejected by everyone, living in the dirt and cold and rain from his first day. I don't think it says that. The story I see is of a family crammed together for the birth of its newest member. Joy, peace, love, hope, all the things we talk about at Advent, I think they were all present there for this baby's birth. I think he was a loved baby welcomed into his family like any other baby. He had enough unrest to come. It was going to get ugly once he started speaking. Uh, but I think up until that time, he had a pretty normal childhood probably, certainly when he was born. Um, so why, why presume that every part of his life was just awful? Um, okay, so another Christmas story that is probably not familiar to you. I thought it would be fun to mention... Um, the least referenced account of Jesus' birth. And this probably doesn't bring it to your mind. Um, Most of us are familiar with the accounts in Matthew and Luke. But not many people are familiar with what John had to say about Jesus' birth. And when I mentioned this on Facebook a few weeks ago, a lot of people said, John didn't talk about the nativity. Well, yeah, he did, but you're just looking in the wrong book. Um, In the interest of time, I won't make you go find it like I did on Facebook. Uh, I'll read some of this account just to see what you think of it. This is Revelation 12, 1 through 5. A great, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. One is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
Now, there's a lot of crazy symbolic language here, so try and just ignore that for now. But if you can understand something like Narnia, you can track this. Who is described as a male child to be born of a woman who is going to rule all the nations through scripture? It's Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. People get crazy ideas about dragons and pregnant women with stars on their heads and all this. Like, It's symbolic language. This is not meant to be read like there are stars falling to earth and a giant woman. Um, this is a reference to Jesus. The woman with a crown of 12 stars, 12 tribes of Israel, this woman is Israel. Out of Israel will come a son. He was the promised seed to come out of Israel. It's symbolic. So don't get distracted by the strange language. Jesus is being born and a creature is crouching in wait to kill him. A son has been promised to come out of Israel and Satan was waiting so he could kill him. But in the end, the child did die but he resurrected and ascended to heaven, completely taking Satan off guard and screwing up all of his plans. But the story goes on to say, if you were to read on, that since the dragon failed to kill Jesus, he directed his energy to the church. First he tries to deceive them, and then later he tries to persecute them and kill them, which all happened. This is a story we know. So I don't want to get too deep into Revelation here, because that will never end. But there's a point I want to mention here. While I believe Jesus was born in a tranquil setting on earth, something very different was happening behind the scenes. This babe would grow and struggle with with this adversary his whole life. Turns out Satan would be unsuccessful in killing him through Herod. He could not get him to bow to him when he was tempted in the wilderness. Throughout his life, Jesus was tempted, just like us, the scripture says, but he didn't sin. So the dragon failed repeatedly in his battles with Aslan. It's a different story, but you get the idea, right? This is, you can do this language. This is what it's talking about. In the end, Satan might have seen a glimmer of hope for success, but he died, and then he rose again. So he lost. This man truly was the Messiah. He had come to defeat sin and death, and he did it. He waged the bloodiest battle possible, and he came out a triumphant peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. He truly was the Prince of Peace because he came and took the peace and gave it to those who were his own. And that is good news for great, of great joy for all people. One last story for you. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just screw up all your Christmas, so. Back to Luke 2. <clears throat> Again here, I think we have the wrong story. Not drastically wrong, but the real story, I think, is a lot better. First, though, I want to describe the scene in my head that I always pictured growing up. The Tivity scenes, Christmas cards, carols, all these, Renaissance art, they've all conspired to paint this picture in my head that is not right, it's inaccurate, and it just doesn't help me understand the story. This picture is one of friendly-looking sheep herders in their nicest linens. Um, They're excited to see the spectacularly beautiful winged women who have come to share a message with them. Uh, They probably shielded their eyes because those angels, man, they're bright. Uh, And then the angels break out into song to release the first Christmas album. Um, The big pieces are kind of, sort of close, but not really. I think what the Bible says is much better. Um, We'll have have to do a little background to understand what's happening and why. Here's the real story. Shepherds were watching their flocks by night. But shepherds were not clean people. They were filthy, nasty people. They didn't go home at night. They didn't shower and, you know, throw their stuff in the laundry and take out their clean shepherd outfit. Uh, They lived in filth. They smelled like animals. They lived like animals. They slept with them. They never left. They patched them up when they were injured. They were covered with blood and you figure out the rest. They were messy people. That was their life. It was 
the glamorous life of a shepherd. They're outcasts from civilization. They just didn't go to town because they weren't welcome there. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, it said. An angel, one angel. Also, this angel would not look like the one in your nativity. Um, based on every other mention of angels in scripture, there's no reason to think that it had wings or that it was a woman or appeared to be a woman. Um, it probably, according to what scripture says everywhere else about angels, it looked like a guy. And there he was, and the guy started saying stuff. Now, he is a blindingly bright guy, so that would be different, but, but just looked like a guy standing there among them. No indication that he had wings or looked any different. Now, the glory of the Lord that accompanied, accompanied him must have been spectacular, but I would bet you that they probably didn't just do that. Usually, when you hear, read about the glory of the Lord in Scripture, people are laid out. Um, it, and this angel appeared to them. Popped out of nowhere, as far as I can tell. Um, this, when you think of what happened there, this is, this is what is meant by being filled with great fear. Um, also, it doesn't say that they sang. It says that they appeared and said, not sang. Singing is fine, but that's not what it says. Uh, it also doesn't say that the clouds parted and that they were all up there. It says that suddenly uh, they appeared among them, which would be terrifying to all of a sudden have thousands and thousands of people all around you saying the same thing. Uh, that doesn't sound like a comforting thing at first. Um, but when they're saying, glory to God in the highest, and then give the message of why, the glory to God in the highest, um, you'll understand why this was good news, news to them. Uh, one last thing to keep in mind, these people were um, well acquainted with angels in their history, their culture, but they had not heard from God for 400 years. So the, the first time that Jesus, uh, that God speaks, that angels appear, is after 400 years, is to shepherds, outcasts in the wilderness. Why not to, why didn't they appear at the temple? Why didn't they appear to the rabbis? Why did they appear to us shepherds? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus' mission was for outcasts who knew that they needed him, not for religious people who thought they were already okay. Uh, one more thing to mention in that account. Um, it talks about the heavenly host appearing. Host is military language. It's essentially saying an army appeared, an army of angels appeared. This would be a terrifying thing. But it gets better. Um, why shepherds or why these shepherds? Prophets had said that the Messiah would come to bring peace. As we, as we saw, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And, and there's no promise of peace for the wicked, but there is for the righteous. We don't need peace to be brought, but to be made. We need to be rescued. So why to these shepherds? Uh, many people have said that, that um, Jesus wasn't born in December. It was probably in the summer because people take their lambs inside in the winter, which is more or less true. But, there's a significant tradition that believes that Jesus was born on December 25th. Um, and I'll tell you why. Why would there be shepherds in the field in winter? It's because these were not shepherds raising the family flocks. These are special shepherds raising special lambs. These guys worked for the temple raising sacrificial lambs. Bethlehem was just a hop away from Jerusalem. The Mosaic law called for two lambs to be slaughtered every day in sacrifice. Not to mention the lambs required for Passover and other, excuse me, other sacrifices. Thousands of lambs were kept here for the purpose of giving sacrifice year round. In fact, generations before, remember David was a shepherd in those same hills raising those same sheep. 
um, centuries later, a descendant of David would also be the ultimate sacrificial lamb. But Jesus would do what these lambs could not. Remember, they've been offered over and over twice a day for something like 1,400 years. If my math is right, that is something like one million lambs for the daily sacrifices alone. That's a bunch of lambs. That takes a bunch of shepherds. These lambs didn't take away any sin, but Jesus did. Once and for all, Jesus became the single sacrifice that removed us from sin and brought us, made us, at peace with God. That's what made him our king. Not just because he was heir to David, and certainly not because he overthrew Rome like the Jews expected, but he was king because he defeated our greatest enemy and won our freedom and set up a kingdom not of this world. So it's entirely possible that Jesus was born on December 25th because lambs needed watching in Bethlehem that night. Um, Regardless when it was, the connections are amazing. But there's more. Appearing to the shepherds was huge, especially these shepherds. As I said before, these guys are filthy. And I don't just mean grimy, dirty. They were ceremonially unclean, like the animals uh, in the the stable and, and Mary would have been after Jesus was born. But these guys lived in this. So they never had time to spend days to go and, and make, uh, you know, go through the rituals to clean them, cleanse themselves. They couldn't do that. So they lived in their filth, lived in their sin all the time. Um, so the irony here of people who were perpetually ceremonially unclean, who watched over the means of all Israel's temporary deliverance, could never participate. They could never receive forgiveness for themselves. They could never offer a sacrifice in the temple or receive this uh, forgiveness. So who received the first announcement of the Messiah? Not the rabbis, not the righteous, not the ones who said there was peace, but there wasn't peace. It was the ones who knew that they had no peace and knew that they could never have it. They're social and religious outcasts without any hope in this life or in the life to come. But that night they were given hope. The angel said, tonight I bring you good news of great joy. I'll bet there was. Is there any better news for these people? Any cause of greater joy? There's hope even for us, people who can't get forgiveness ever? You may feel that today. Like I said, we've talked about different pieces. There's peace that, a sense of calmness and settledness in life, and then there's peace with God. Um, So can I have peace? Is there hope? The answer to both is yes, but I want to untangle a couple of things as we wrap up here. I mentioned at the beginning the anxiety of the season. Um, That can rob us of peace in in this life. So can depression. Um, It's easy to feel that something is missing, and the holidays only amplify that feeling. Anxiety comes from things like uncertainty and lack of control. And depression can come from things like a lack of joy, a lack of interest, a, a lack of engagement with life. And these lacks... They suck the air out of your chest and they can, they can suck the peace from your lives. But they shouldn't. But the reason they often do is because we've misunderstood peace. And I know how these things can feel and I, I still experience it at times. I don't want to just give a message about peace without acknowledging that I know there are people here today who feel like they're drowning uh, and that this season makes it worse. But there's two realities that I want you to hear this morning. One is Jesus saves sinners. But two is life is hard. And they're not at odds with one another. They, they both happen at the same time. If Jesus has set you free from sin, you are free indeed. There is no doubt about it. But salvation doesn't free you from the problems of life.
If you haven't trusted Jesus for salvation from sin, there's a reason for feeling insecure in this life. When we live separated from the one who gives life and who is love and peace and joy and hope, that means we are separated from those things as well. If that is you and you want relief from that kind of anxiety, the solution is simple. Put your faith in Christ. And what better time is there to do it than the holidays when everybody is talking about it? If you don't know what that means, or if you want to talk to someone, um, talk to someone around you, pull someone into the prayer room, you're welcome to come, come back to Message Plus afterwards. We'd love to talk with you about that if you want to be introduced to Jesus. If you have placed your trust in Christ, then you know that salvation does not miraculously turn every part of your life to roses. Don't confuse a feeling of insecurity in your daily life with losing your security in Christ. Your feelings don't tell you anything about your forgiveness. If you have placed your faith in Christ, then you are his and he is yours. And life is still hard. But you're not alone. The church, the body of believers, is here. If you need advice, reassurance, friendship, a listening ear, someone to just be there, those are all available in the body. I'm not saying they take everything away, but there's a start. The body is to help one another. There's a whole lot of one another in scripture and that's what we're here for. So don't suffer in silence. Don't try and do it alone. Find somebody, talk to somebody and even if they're uncomfortable and don't know what to do, they will find someone who can talk to you or listen. There are people here who are willing so please say something. The peace that the Jews wanted in a Messiah did not come. They were not freed. Life continued as it was. Jesus came, he lived, he died, and life stayed the same. Nothing changed for them. But Jesus did what no other could do. Jesus brought peace with God for those who would follow. The peace that we desire will come, by the way. We're talking about what theologians call the already not yet of the faith. We who are believers now have peace with God. It's a present reality. And we will have ultimate peace in heaven one day. But that day is not today. We're not there yet. For now, we wait like the the Israelites wandering through the wilderness of this life. Promised land will come, but we're not there yet. So this Christmas season, I want you to remember that there is hope. Hope for peace with our creator. And this peace brings us great joy. Not an end to earthly sorrow, now, but an end to eternal separation from God. But this peace is only for those who call on this babe in the manger who grew and lived and died in our place. This is Christmas and Easter all in one message. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, the Advent is just a really weird story. But with the historical reality of what Jesus did, this is the most amazing story. Lord, thank you for... uh, for you, the Lord's day when we can come together, be together to worship you, to learn of you, and just to, to uh, share in your presence. Um, I thank you for this Christmas season, what we've been able to learn in recent weeks and in weeks to come. Uh, I pray that you, you uh, remain with us all, bring us all um, a reminder of the assurance of peace that we have eternally with you, and also um, for those who are struggling, I pray that you bring peace and comfort in their lives one way or another in this uh, sometimes difficult season. Uh, I ask all this and I pray that you be with us and protect all of us until we again gather together. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. 
For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.